following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Merry Christmas, everyone. Let's turn to 1 Peter 1. Thank you. It is wonderful to worship together this morning, especially in light of the Christmas time and the season, our Lord's incarnation, His first advent, of course, our great hope and joy, and we look forward to or anticipate His second coming. Um, We sincerely hope that you will have a wonderful time, whether it's with family or friends uh, or doing other things um, as we celebrate the Lord's coming to earth. Uh, Enjoy this time over these next few days. We pray for safety for so many that are traveling. Probably some here, we know a bunch are already gone, uh, traveling to different places. And uh, maybe in some of you will still continue to travel over this time. So we hope that your vacations and celebrations will be God-honoring, looking to the true source of our joy here at our Christmas time. Let's look at 1 Peter 1. We'll read verses 3 through 9, and then we'll pray together. And as you're looking here and reading along, or whether you're listening, I want you to pay attention to what you and I have as believers, what we get. Um, And then I want you to realize that these incredible gifts that we get or have produce joy and rejoicing for only those who are believers in Jesus Christ. So listen actively. Uh, We're going to do 1 Peter 1, verse 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy... He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of of your souls. Let's pray together. Our dear Lord Jesus, we join together to praise your name and to confess our rebellion against you and to declare that we need you, to thank you for all your benefits and to receive grace today as a body as we sit and listen to your word proclaimed. Lord, much of the stuff that we do even this morning, the, the liturgy can easily become our duty instead of our joy But Lord, we come again to your word with expectant hearts and a request that you would teach us and renew us in in genuine affections for you. You truly are better than every other comfort or temporal joy. We ask that you give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Would your Holy Spirit convict us of sin and stir our hearts to love you above all other gods. Lord, we pray that um, you would make us worthy of our calling grow us in grace, making us more like Christ, being people who do good works empowered by your grace to the end that Jesus Christ would be glorified. Lord, please build your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we took a look at Matthew chapter 6, looked at verses 19 through 21, just a little section of scripture to remind ourselves how easy it is for us to get distracted 
and disappointed with all the things and trappings that surround us here at Christmas time. Specifically, we call them treasures on earth, the things that we look to and so easily become idolatry in our own lives. I warned just simply about five different treasures that are so easy at this time to be stumbled upon, uh, material things, the acceptance of others, the romanticism or the feeling of the Christmas season, traditions, and even the family. These things can so easily distract us from the most important thing, Jesus Christ himself. We saw that these are good things. They're not to be completely shed or we should stop doing these things altogether, but rather enjoyed properly as a means to an end. They're not an end in and of themselves. When we pursue them as an end, and they will give us some sort of joy, but in the end, they will fail us. They're not eternal. They can't give us everlasting joy, and they will fail. All these wonderful things, like I said, are not an end in and of themselves, but rather they're a means to an end of pointing us to God, our Father, the giver of all these good gifts. They're meant to show us who made these things and who is the source of all joy, the one that can truly satisfy. Now, we called last week's sermon kind of goofy, but how not to have a disappointing Christmas, which I realize bothers a lot of you grammar nerds, but it meant to be a point here how not to have a disappointing Christmas. It was sort of the part one of what we're going to do today as well. Kind of setting us up, showing us the false idols that are around us constantly and really vie for our attention. Uh, we know that as we looked at Christmas, in light of the fact that we often go into it looking for December to be that which gives us joy and help and like some sort of comfort and cheer, that oftentimes by the end of December we're somewhat disappointed because it really doesn't deliver on every single promise that it said it would. But truth be told, that's really the negative side of it. And we, we need to look at that. But we didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about the fact that many of us still participate and enjoy Christmas and love Christmas time. And by the end of December, we're kind of glad. It went really well. And a lot of times, really maybe for some of the mixed right and wrong reasons, we enjoy the season. Each of the warnings from last week pointed out that our hearts can easily pursue earthly treasures instead of heavenly ones. It's so easy. We showed that all these idols, though, will ultimately not deliver on their promises. But that's not to say, let's just be honest for a minute, that's not to say that they don't give us some joy or some pleasure or some satisfaction of some sort. Even if it's for a season, the whole reason we do some of these things or pursue them is because they have some sort of small joys to them, some sort of satisfaction or happiness or fulfillment. It's possible that they can provide us with a wonderful Christmas time. They really can. But they simply can't provide us with a lasting, wonderful, satisfactory joy. Something that's eternal. Once we get to, uh, I don't know, January 2nd, um, everything goes from magic to business. I mean, it just kind of wears away from the wonder and beauty of all the holidays to the doldrums and kind of the dark, depressing time of winter coming on us now. And you know that January, February, and March come with a lot of uh, disappointment, boredom, normalcy, like the everyday stuff that we just got to keep on doing. And now, a few people understand this, right? And they don't like January, February, March, and so they want to keep Christmas time going, right? Um, thanks to them, we have places like this. This is a place called North Pole, Alaska, all right? This is a real place. You can see here their, their, their slogan at the bottom, where the spirit of Christmas lives year-round. 
Because they love Christmas so much, it's like, hey, let's just keep on doing this thing and kind of have the spirit of Christmas going all the time. Because we know that joy that comes from Christmas time is great. And if we can keep this up, it's a good thing. Next here, though, we see um, much more direct the naming of the town is Santa Claus, Indiana. Go ahead and look up, not on your phones right now, but it's real. Santa Claus, Indiana. This place is called this. So uh, they call themselves America's Christmas hometown, making sure they keep it real all year round. Then you have this place. This is probably my favorite. This is Midland, Michigan. This is a place called Santa School. As you can see, many jolly fellows with long white beards there congregating, learning how to be the best version of St. Nick. Now, you can see they do many things. Uh, these guys are really practicing their ho-ho-hoing, really getting into it. This guy's got a nice bowl full of jelly there. You can see it really getting into it. Over, this guy is limbering up to get down the chimney, I think. That's, that's his thing. And then if you look at this, I mean, these guys are really studying how to make a list. And the guy on the left, definitely checking it twice. You know, these guys are really getting into this whole thing. So in this area, they're like, we got it all year round. Make sure we get Christmas right. This place is in Frankenmuth, Michigan. It's a place, I want to make sure I get this name right. This is a place called Bronner's Christmas Wonderland. This is a place, 320,000 square foot space, contains 350 decorated Christmas trees, 150 styles of nutcrackers, gifts imported from 70 countries around the world, 100,000 Christmas lights brighten the store's exterior throughout the season. Get this, their electric bill averages $1,250 a day. So, you talk about some Christmas cheer, they've got it. So this place is going nuts all year, making sure that they are in on it, making sure that Christmas time happens all the time. They've wreaths on the ceiling. It's all wooden and beautiful and decked out. These people know how to do Christmas. And the truth is, we get the idea. We're like, oh, Christmas year-round, that sounds so great. I mean, it can really deliver on all these different promises, keep the cheer up, keep things going, uh, except like maybe like if you went the wrong way and like it keep happening over and over and over again, like Groundhog Day, and it's just like you get some to get sick of it. However, if like you have a, sprinkled in a few, few normal days in there, and then you keep getting these good Christmas days, I mean, this cheer could go year-round. It'd be great. But even in towns like this, like North Pole, Alaska, like Santa Claus, Indiana, like Frankenmuth, Michigan, they still have to deal with real life. They still have to pay their bills. They still have to deal with natural disasters or crime, taxes, death, in short, all these places, although they continue to have the Christmas spirit all the time, they still have to deal with all the effects of the fall. They still live in a sin-cursed world. The Christmas season just can't last forever. However good it is, they won't ultimately be provided with satisfaction as much as they do this. So since we know this is true, and we've proved it from last week, and we understand this idea, it begs the question, what should we be seeking during this holiday time, during this Christmas time? Instead of the negative how not to have a disappointing Christmas, uh, let's pursue something different. I've entitled today's sermon, How to Have a Merry Christmas, or a more biblical title, How to Have a Joyful Christmas. Now, I recognize if I'm going to tell you how to have one of those, it's a pretty presumptuous statement. With all the different stuff that's going on in your life that you're saying, Chris, I can actually have a joyful or a merry Christmas, it's not me that's saying this, though. I think we have good grounding here based on what we find in Scripture that any and every Christian should be joyful, not actually only on Christmas, though, but throughout every single day of the year. In Christ, a Christian is more than cheerful or merry. He has true joy. 
What do the, scripture means, the Scriptures mean when they talk about joy? Or are they talking about the same happiness that Christmas seems to promise us, or is it something more? Or is it something less? What does it talk about here? So let's have a starting point. Christmas time is not the source of joy. Christmas time introduces us to the true source of joy. I'll say it again. Christmas is not the source of joy, but Christmas introduces us to the true source of joy. Now, if you think about this, the events of the newlyweds traveling to Bethlehem, right, or uh, the angels showing up to declare Jesus' birth to the shepherds on the side of the hill in the middle of the night, or the birth of a baby in a stable, or these wise men bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh, none of these things innately bring joy. Many of these types of things, uh, as just especially with the regular birth of, of children, happen throughout the world. But something here, we look at it and we say, all these things, do they innately bring us joy? The fact that these things happen. And all the parts of the Christmas story really only make sense when you find out who the main character is. Without understanding the identity of the one in the womb, none of this stuff really matters that much. It doesn't innately bring us any joy whatsoever. It isn't the events that surrounded the birth narrative of Jesus Christ that make Christmas time so wonderful. We don't derive our joy from taking long journeys with pregnant women. We don't derive our joys from getting on Airbnb and making sure that we uh, re you know, reserve a stable and have the baby there at the stable. Those things in and of themselves don't bring us joy. Most of us understand that. We don't get the joy from the things that happened around that. We don't try to replicate them necessarily. I mean, that kind of sounds silly. I get that. And yet, we willingly spend our time and money or engage our hearts and minds pursuing the things that surround the Christmas season. So easily, they become the things that we want, like, again, as an end in and of themselves. So today, what I want to do is help us understand that we can actually have a joyful Christmas because in the Christmas event, we've been introduced to the source of eternal joy and happiness. Now, if you, if you understand what's going on here, it's not just at Christmas time that we're aiming at. We're actually saying that this person is above all of creation and every single day. And so as we look at this, we realize it's not just for the most wonderful time of the year, but most certainly as we look at it, we apply this truth. So let's go back and do this. We're going to look at the Christmas story, mostly in the Gospel of Luke. And uh, what I'd like to do is a few things here. I want to do two main things. I want us to see, first of all, that in this story, in this narrative, is continually sprinkled with joy and rejoicing and glorying. And we even have the praising of God here as much rejoicing is happening. All the believing characters in this story are filled with joy. I'll show you this in a minute. But the second thing is, I want to point out that it's not, again, like we kind of said, it's not about the surrounding events that they're joyful about. They're not joyful about a baby being born in a stable. They're rejoicing because they know something to be true about this baby. This great joy is based on the reality of the salvation of God's people and Him coming as the promised Savior and King, the Messiah, and all that that means for humanity. So let's do this. Eventually, we're going to get to 1 Peter, where we started, but I want us to look at Luke 1. We're going to start in verse 39 through 45. And as you're turning there, as the background, the beginning of chapter 1, you may know this, deals with the prediction of John the Baptist being born to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. 
And then you also have Gabriel coming to tell Mary that she is also going to have a baby, and his name would be Jesus. Now, both of these predictions are highly suspect, since both of them have major complications. If you think about Elizabeth, she's old and barren. Think about Mary, she's young and she's a virgin. And somehow, these are, the prediction is that these guys would, these ladies would actually be able to have children. And so we look upon it like there's no way this could happen. And yet, in God's sovereign work, he does the impossible thing to bring about the conception of these children. Let's pick up in verse 39 where Mary comes to visit Elizabeth. Verse 39. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And, he, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. When Elizabeth comes and hears, and hears Mary greet her, the baby in her womb, who is John the Baptist, leaps for joy. Now, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here, but it's going on here. There's something happening here that when the voice of Mary is heard, the mother of Jesus Christ, inside uh, Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist leaps, and she makes the, the statement. It's not just leaping like, oh, man, I had some crazy movement in there. He leaps for joy. Somehow there's a connection here that the writer wants us to make sure we understand. Think about this for a minute. Mary is coming, and she's in quite a compromised position. Elizabeth isn't like stoked that she's getting to meet Mary, this huge Christian celebrity lady who's coming to visit her. Remember, she is pregnant. They're not yet married. They don't know what's going on. Everyone around the situation is thinking, right, sure you're a virgin. Sure the Holy Spirit actually conceived this child on you. I mean, consider how weird this must have been and actually quite difficult. So when Elizabeth receives her into her home and hears her, she's not so excited that she gets to meet Mary. Her excitement is all bound up in the fact that she is holding the Messiah in her womb. So much that she is filled with the Holy Spirit and she blesses her and praises the Lord. And this baby inside of her, John the Baptist, leaps for joy. Before Jesus is ever born, while he's still inside his mother's womb, others are responding in joy. Not just like, oh, I'm glad I know this information and the facts that this guy's coming. With joy, they understand this. Elizabeth blesses, John leaps, and what does Mary do? Look at verse 46 and 47. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She goes on then, if you keep reading there, to praise the Lord for all his wonderful works of elevating the lowly and bringing low those who are mighty in their own estimation. She rejoices in her King, the Lord and Messiah. And don't miss all that Mary says there because it will help us understand why this is such a joyous occasion. Look what she's doing. She doesn't make much of the fact that it's a virgin birth. That's not her big thing. If you look here, the, the, the truly amazing miracle is the fact that the Savior will be born. Not just anyone, not just her son, not just that it will look like her. This baby boy is not just any old baby. She says that my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. 
She's making a point. Her thoughts and praises go straight to God, who had promised deliverance and salvation to his people. She rejoices in the God who is her Savior. He was finally coming to do all that he said he would do. Consider this for a minute. There's also other details we filled in here, but consider the angel who comes and speaks. How the angel described Jesus when he predicted his birth back in verse 30 through 33. I'll read it for you. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. She gets it. This is that baby. This is the one who could rule the baby that was promised all the way back to David, all the way back to Jacob, all the way back to Abraham. And now we know all the way back to Adam, back in Genesis 3.15, the one who had come to crush the serpent's head. This person was the one who would save them from their sin. In Matthew's account, you probably remember this, in Matthew 1, the Lord appears to Joseph, and he tells him that Mary will bear a son, And he says this, you shall call his name Jesus. Now, if we were probably more Hebrew, we'd understand he's talking about Jesus or Joshua, which we already studied. We know his name is talking about deliverance, that Yahweh delivers. But listen to what he says here. Call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. This is incredible that he would say this. It's not just the enemies, although he certainly will. He makes it very clear that this person, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. We have Elizabeth, John the Baptist, Mary rejoicing because God of a thousands of years now is coming and bringing his Savior, the Messiah that he promised so long ago. Even Elizabeth's husband, Zechariah, and Mary, as they look at this, he proclaims why Christ is so great. After his son, John the Baptist, is born, right? Zechariah prophesies about Jesus, the one coming, and this is what he says. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Zechariah understands the magnitude of this person who's coming. He's not just this other boy that's going to be born. He understands who is inside Mary's womb. He knows who this one is, the horn of salvation, the deliverer, the great king, the one who will rule, get this word, forever. Lofty, lofty language here, but there's more. Consider the message of the angels and the response of the shepherds. Luke 2, 8 through 11, just listen for a minute. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone about them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now, 
You and I, we've probably heard this story, I don't know, maybe even a hundred times, maybe more than that. We've, we've read these words or we've heard it before. It's, it's kind of old hat to us. But when we consider this, do you know what they're saying? They're saying, I have a message. Don't freak out because I'm an angel. I would be scared too. But, but hold on a second. I have a message for you that's of great joy for all people. It's not just a message of information. Like you're going to need to remember this. They're going to remember it. But more than that, they say, this is one of great joy. A savior. Actually, let's, let's refine that. The savior. The Messiah, Christ the Lord. The savior is being born today. The one that's entering into history and that stable over there in that city. That's what's going on. That's the news that he is giving to them. This is good news and news of great joy. It's like he's talking, like this angel is talking to the shepherds, like, hey guys, you know the promises. You're Jews, you know what's going on. You've heard that God would come and send a deliverer, but things are awfully dark. More than that, if, especially if you know where we are in, in biblical history, the prophets haven't spoken for really over 400 years. It is extremely dark. There is not a word from the Lord. And in the midst of this time, here, in the dead of night, they proclaim Jesus Christ, the one who would come and break through and save his people and reign victorious over all of his enemies. And this one, this one is here. Glory to God. Rejoice, the Messiah is born. And of course, you know the story found in Luke 2, 15 through 20. Not only do the shepherds go and see this, they also make known the saying that, they have, that had been told them concerning the child. They're telling others about this very same thing, this message of joy. And after they see, they eventually leave the scene glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. The shepherds don't hesitate one minute to rejoice in this God and the newborn king, this little savior wrapped up and placed in a manger. But there's more. Consider the wise men. Now, for this, we're going to have to look back at Matthew 2. Or you can just listen. It's fine. This will make sense to you if you remember what Matthew was all about as we looked at it a little while ago, as he's trying to present Jesus as the true king. In Matthew 2, the wise men come to Herod seeking the king of the Jews, not him. They're not looking for him. They're looking for the king of the Jews, another more important king. Eventually, we see them look toward Bethlehem, and when they do, they see the star and let's see how they respond. Listen to this in 2, 9 through 11. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had, been, they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. And they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They understood this was the real king, not Herod. This was the real king of the universe, not just a localized region. This was the real king, the king that had been correctly identified all the way from Micah 5.2, the ruler of Israel. When God revealed Jesus to these wise men with the star, what did they do? They rejoice with exceeding great joy. The star directs them right to the real king of the Jews, and Matthew records, yes, that they rejoice exceedingly with great joy. Now, I could keep going. If you remember in Luke, we also get to Simeon, and we also get to Anna. Simeon waits his whole life, and he has this prophecy that's told to him, he will see the Lord's Christ. He will see the Messiah before he dies. Can you imagine getting that promise? 
And then Mary and Joseph bring this boy, and he knows and realizes. And what does he say? My eyes have seen the boy. No. My eyes have seen Mary and Joseph's son. No. It says, my eyes have seen your salvation. He knows who this boy is. He knows that it's not just another kid walking into the temple. And the prophetess Anna, she also encounters Jesus, and she begins to give thanks to God. And what does she do? But she speaks to all who are waiting for the redemption of Israel, speaking to the thing that they needed the most, salvation, redemption. The Christmas story, though, as we've just seen really quickly, is one of immense joy. All these different people, the characters that are involved here, understand that this is something big that's happening, immense, bigger than anything else that's happened in any part of history. The narrative is littered with language of rejoicing, blessing, praising, glorifying God, and joy to all people. But the joy is not in all of the details surrounding the birth. The great joy is based on the reality of the salvation of God's people in the coming promised Savior King, the Messiah. Now, consider the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the life of Joseph and Mary, the life of the shepherds and the wise men and Simeon and Anna. All their lives did not become merry and bright because they had this manger scene or coming to see Jesus as a child uh, experience. They don't somehow now carry around with them the Christmas cheer. They are not somehow changed in that way, and they're all jolly and bright. They weren't, if you can say this way, they weren't hashtag blessed after being with the little Savior, and everything has flowed out of them. They're just completely prosperous and flourishing. Even if we fast forward a few years into the rest of their life, we start to understand we don't find an eternal Christmas time surrounding Jesus wherever he goes. That's not what's happening here. In fact, it seems like just the opposite is true. If you consider Jesus, he says to his disciples that they will need to take up their cross and follow him. His road leads to mockery, beating, shame, rejection, crucifixion, and eventually to the grave. His way is one of suffering and pain. And it's true that many of us have experienced life on this path. I mean, we may never know what it's like to carry a cross, but we do understand that the road of discipleship is difficult, full of hardship, loss, and disappointment. We understand that the little Christmas cloud doesn't go around with us everywhere we go. Just because we have Jesus, all of a sudden, everything is merry and bright and wonderful. We understand that living life here on earth requires us to live as theologians of the cross, that understand where we come from, knowing that we are not promised that life will be easy or prosperous or comfortable. But we know that this is not the end. Jesus' end was not the grave. He rose again, and thereby killing sin, Satan, and death, and winning for us victory forever. We know that this path is a path filled then with hope, a path that's leading somewhere much greater to true salvation and joy, incredible joy and glory. We know that the Messiah who was rejected by men and ridiculed, whose body was beaten and torn with whips, who died a horrific death on a Roman cross, we know that that Messiah paved the way for glory, for everlasting joy, 
by becoming a curse for us. He took the punishment of our sin. He delivered us from the rightful judgment that you and I so much deserve. He gave to us and secured our salvation, our righteousness, and our eternal joy. And we saw this a few weeks ago when we started looking at the gospel. If we repent of our sin and trust this God alone as our Savior and King, we get God with us. We get Emmanuel. We're not promised uh, like a cheap Christmas joy all of the year long uh, as, as it goes from day to day. That joy that's sentimental and based on wonderful circumstances and things that we like. We are promised true joy and lasting joy grounded in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We're talking about a substantial joy that is present both in joys and the heartaches of a life lived in a sin-cursed world, the experience that you and I have today. There's a difference, a huge difference, in the joy that the world offers to us and the joy that God offers us through what he's talking about here in the Bible. And I don't mean that one is happiness and the one is not happiness. I, I, that's not helpful. I don't think that's right. When the Bible speaks of joy, it is talking about happiness. It is an expression of gladness and the response of a happy heart that has received good things. But the difference is perspective. What do I mean by that? When we talk about joy, worldly joy, we're asking a question like this. How do I get joy for the next couple days? Through this, this, this time period of the holidays. How do I have real joy? How do I make it through being happy and fulfilled? So I want to make sure I do that well. And this is answered, of course, by finding things that will immediately bring joy to me. Things that I would like to do. Things that help me like, kind of make it through. Maybe food, family, traditions, pleasure, nostalgic activities. Things that would bring me joy. Or maybe it's other things that point us out to uh, enjoy this time of year. However, the point here is that we start to look and try to fulfill for that certain amount of time. But let's go a little broader than that. Let's say it's bigger than just the holiday time. And there's people that are unbelievers that say, I want a whole joyful and fulfilling life. And so they ask the question, how do I be joyful for the next 40 years? I want to live the rest of my life in joy. And they try desperately as much as they can and often get good answers. They try, maybe they'll, they'll change their lifestyle. They'll pursue things that are going to actually pay off in the end. Maybe it's things that they save up for retirement or they change their lifestyle so that they're far more healthy and then they can enjoy day after day after day. Maybe they practice meditation or some other thing that makes them feel better. And they do have some sort of good joy throughout those years. But what I say here, when I'm, I'm talking about the difference between biblical joy and, and actual worldly joy that the, it can offer, is a difference in perspective. I mean that these two questions how can I have joy for the next four days? Or how can I have joy for the next 40 years? Those questions are far too small. What I'm saying as a Christian believer here, and actually every person in the world ought to ask, how do I get joy for the next 40 billion years? Not the next 40 years. How do I get eternal joy that lasts forever, that grounds me as a person, and I know I am safe and happy for the rest of eternity? That's the question. Not well, how can I get what I need to in these next 40 years. You can't answer that question with lights and family and gatherings and mistletoe. I mean, you can't answer that question with money or sex or power and other worldly pursuits that somehow would give you joy. 
you must look to the true story of the world to see where it has come from and where we are going. Only here do we learn that we were made in the image of God and that we are accountable to Him. And we were made, get this, to enjoy Him forever. That we were meant to have fellowship with the greatest being in the universe, the one who made every single thing else. Literally, He made you a creature of joy. Now, we understand what happened back in Genesis. We understand our father Adam as he sinned. And we also understand our own rebellion against this God. Have we pitted ourselves and said, no, I want to do what I want to do. I want to create my own joy. Somehow that's going to be better. And we understand that when we stand as this way, we pit ourselves against the God of all joy. And as Christians, we know that the coming of Jesus Christ was necessary because of our rebellion and sin against our righteous creator. We needed to be redeemed, to be saved from the wrath of God. We needed someone to take our place. We know that without that, we would burn forever in hell away from God's presence. Our greatest need is our salvation. So that with those 40 billion years that we keep talking about, we might know him forever. And this is the beauty and joy of Christmas. Christmas is not the source of our joy. Christmas introduces us to the source of our true joy, to Jesus himself. Only in him do we find a joy that far exceeds the joy that can be found in Christmas time. Other joys that this world offers are good, but they are so temporary and none of them can give us joy for the next 40 billion years, 50 billion, I don't care, 60 billion, keep on going. They cannot, they will not deliver on their promises. None of these joys can carry us through the pain of sufferings here on earth in the midst of our struggle. When we're depressed or anxious or hurt, only Jesus, the one who has secured our salvation and joy, can provide exactly what we need to make us truly happy. When terrible sufferings and afflictions come upon us, you know what I mean, your existence, the different things that you struggle with day in, day out, death, sickness, sadness, whatever it is, we don't turn with smiling faces to say, I'm glad I have a lot of money. That's really helping me out. Or I'll just have this family gathering and that'll make everything all better. And we seem to almost like medicate on top of it, like bring these other things to make me feel better about myself. The problem is none of them last. All of them will come short. None of them will be able to provide the satisfaction and joy that we so desperately want. None of these things are permanent. There's only one who can offer you eternal, substantive joy that makes sense in the midst of your suffering. It's Jesus, the Savior of your soul. One author says it this way, and I, I love this. The basis for our sorrow is temporary. Consider that. The basis for our sorrow and suffering and affliction is temporary. The basis of our gladness, our joy, is permanent. So consider again. Listen. It says this, the basis for our sorrow is temporary. It's fleeting. The basis for our gladness is permanent, guarded by God himself, the creator of the universe. Jesus has given us himself and won our salvation for eternity. And now, and only now, can we turn to 1 Peter 1 and understand this rightly. 
Listen as I read 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? To an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you, get this word, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than that, than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls." So I go back, ask the question, how do you have a Merry Christmas? Or the better biblical question, how do you have a joyful Christmas? How do you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory? There is only one way to have lasting joy. We glory in our great King who has secured our salvation, our living hope, an inheritance that can't be taken away from us. It is the only way to have joy for the next 40 billion years. And it's the only way for you and I to actually have joy in this Christmas season. So I recognize that there are hardships. I recognize that this is a hard time of year for so many. But I promise you, you can have joy when we look to Christ, the author and finisher of our faith, understanding the basis for our sorrow and affliction and suffering is temporary. But our joy, the basis for our joy and gladness and happiness is permanent and forever. With this in mind, I want you to know that I wish you truly a Merry Christmas and a joyful Christmas that's grounded not in the stuff that we experience around the Christmas tree, that's wonderful, but grounded in the love of Jesus Christ who has made us his own for eternity, giving us true joy. Brothers and sisters, we have every reason to rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Despite our sufferings, we know and have experienced the saving love of our eternal King. Let's pray together. Our Lord, help us in all our struggle and creatureliness. It's, it's so hard for us to see you in the midst of our suffering or in the overwhelming distraction of earthly joys. Help us to rejoice in you the God of all hope, the one who has secured our joy forever. We praise you, the King of glory and the King of our salvation and joy. You've blessed us in the advent or the coming of your, of your Son, Jesus Christ. Come again quickly, Lord. We expect sufferings and pain, but Lord, we joyfully look for your return. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.